It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host, and a great guest. His name is Zach Hicks, and he's the worship pastor. Well, actually, that's the name of his book. He's a worship leader and worship pastor. The book is called A Call to Ministry for Worship Leaders and Teams. And just to give you a little intro to Zach, he is uh, the canon for worship and liturgy at Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. And welcome to the program. So great to be here today, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And you know, there's so many different facets to worship. I'm not sure that people really understand that. You know, we sit up, we sit down, uh, we (laughs) get into many different forms of worship. There's charismatic and contemporary and hymns. And so uh, where do we all begin with this subject? And tell us the inspiration behind the book. Yeah, well, certainly I think we begin with where God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And uh, that's certainly the place where I find myself going back to again and again, uh, because there are there are a lot of opinions about what worship is and does and a lot of different ideas. And I find that the scriptures listening to them are, are a real anchor, a real important place to start And largely, I wrote the book uh, because of my own vocational journey, my own sense of call uh, from an early age, at least early for a lot of folks. I was in high school, and I felt a call to pastoral ministry. And from that point, I always felt like I was going to be a preaching, teaching, making visitations kind of pastor. Mm -hmm. And it was really at the moment of that call that God started cultivating musical gifts and thrusting me in the area of worship leading. So even while I went to undergrad and studied music and then went to seminary, uh, God always put me in these worship leading roles. And I I found myself at first uh, trying to reconcile this fact that I was stuck as a worship leader. And yet I always Hmm. knew, I, I knew that God had called me to pastoral ministry. And then somewhere down the road, as I was leading worship, uh, God sort of hit me over the head largely with the Bible, uh, and largely through the experience of serving the local church, that what I was doing as a worship leader was engaging in pastoral ministry, that the services I planned and led uh, were making disciples and were part and parcel to the way people encounter God and grow in their faith. Uh, And from that point, I just started reflecting on why it was that I felt like there was this bifurcation and separation between worship leaders and pastors and started looking back again at the scriptures, started talking to friends who I respected, and realized that that gap wasn't really as far as I had been led to believe growing up. And uh, my own theological and vocational reflection, uh, alongside talking to a bunch of worship leaders who felt like they were in the same boat, led to me feeling burdened that this was a timely word to be able to encourage worship leaders about the pastoral call Mm -hmm. what we do yeah and you see it in the old testament you see it in the book of psalms that uh you know the pastor is not getting all the accolades it's really the worship and uh, all the worship that goes on so that's a really good point so let's just say you give a book to a pastor and they say okay the worship pastor zach i'm I'm sorry you meant worship leader right What, what do you mean pastor and is there is there sometimes conflicts do you think between what the worship leader is doing what the pastor is doing and do they ever take offense that you shouldn't call yourself a worship pastor yeah, you know, I think that's a it's a really good uh, observation and an issue that I find it really depends on the denomination and tradition that you're in, whether that word pastor is comfortable uh, to be utilized with the worship leader. And what's funny is even though that's the title, I don't want that title to get people 
too hung up because of what I ultimately want to say is whether or not your worship leader is a pastor in the formal sense. They've got reverend by their name or they've got ordination credentials or anything like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. What they're already engaging in, whether they know it or not, is pastoral ministry. What they're doing has a shaping effect whether they know it or not. And for that reason, I think I do think that pastors who work alongside worship leaders need to wake up and need to see their counterparts as engaging in ministry that shapes their flock just as much as their own preaching and teaching and visitation ministry and everything else. Yes. And, you know, just so people know, I guess, you know, there's, uh, how can I say, the worship pastor is a mortician, a dietitian, a an architect. I mean, this is really interesting. I was reading all that. How do you come up with all that? Well, a lot of it is begged, borrowed, and stolen from other people. Um, what I, I I view my book as a synthesis of a lot of other things that I've read from people much more wise than myself. And I've heard these things said in a bunch of different places. And for me, it was just an opportunity to bring it all together uh, because I've heard some people talk about our role as our pastoral role as being theological dietitians. I've heard a lot of people talk about the fact that. Uh, worship leaders help worshipers prepare for their encounter with the death. And so mortician was kind of my uh, metaphor, but I, I think it works in that vein. And so the idea was to section out my book with various metaphors that teased out the facets of pastoral ministry that worship leaders can engage in. Yeah, and you look like you're in good shape, so you know you can give some advice on uh, being a dietitian. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I fake eating well. I just exercise a lot, and I, I guess I'm a skinny guy and have metabolism that still works pretty <laughs> yeah. well. So. <laughs> pretty good. So it's kind of interesting how God you know, uses people. You, know, you wanted to be an architect starting out, I mean, before the Lord called you. And so uh, what are some of those, I guess, the natural gifts or the God-given gifts that he's given you as a, someone who wanted to be an architect uh, as a worship leader? Yeah, I reflected on this in the chapter, Worship Leader is a Liturgical Architect, and there was a while there where when I felt my call into ministry, I mourned the fact that I was giving up this other sense of vocation, that I would be sort of uh, drawing buildings and thinking through the schematics of those kinds of things. And at least for me, it's it's a partial comfort that a lot of that same skill set gets translated into way the way worship services can be planned and designed it very much is architectural work you're you're working with a structure and then you're thinking about what fits inside that structure and uh, what helps uphold it or what uh, compromises it and when you start thinking architecturally about the way worship's structured you're in a, a kind of whole different creative realm and for me that was that was a, a good word for uh, yes. architecture that I had to give up. Absolutely. So let me make a play on that for just a minute. So let's just say ambiance and different architecture of the church. I mean, some have you know beautiful steeples and other uh, stained glass, uh, different acoustics. How much of a difference does that make, the architecture of the place where we worship? Oh, yeah. Well, if we're speaking of literal architecture, um, I'm, I'm one that believes that our aesthetic environment shapes our view of God and our view of worship. And um, I think a bunch of different houses of worship make different statements about who God is. And worship leaders that are aware of what kind of statements they're building and those accoutrements inside their building are making mm-hmm. have a leg up in understanding how people uh, understand God. And, and hopefully the case is 
as they understand the way architecture and art and everything else speaks to the people of God, they recognize what messages maybe aren't being delivered that are part of the scriptural vision of who God is, seeking to complement those things. For instance, I serve in a in a high and lofty cathedral that makes God feel very transcendent nice. and uh, larger than life. And so one of the things that I feel burdened to do as a worship planner and leader is to bring that down. We've got plenty of transcendence going on. How do we understand the the story of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, God is imminent and near. Uh, and so sometimes I will complement the message of our architecture with uh, songs and prayers that speak to and of a God who is very near, very close, our friend. You know what, you, um, well, actually, I was going to say, are you a doctorate yet? You're getting a, a doctor of divinity, aren't you? I'm working on it. It's a doctor of ministry. It's kind of a practical degree. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of it, I understand a lot of people respect you, people who are in the worship, you know, field and ministry. Um, How big a a deal is it as far as understanding the history of worship for uh, the general congregation? I think, well, for the general congregation, I think it's uh, totally important for worship leaders to digest because our knowledge of history helps us to see our present blind spots. And if we can lead with a knowledge of our present blind spots and weaknesses of this moment in in our tradition or in, in evangelical worship or whatever tradition you find yourself, we're going to be better equipped to serve through and complement and s- supplement those blind spots. For the congregations, it sure helps because a, a lot of times our quibbles and issues with worship uh, are things that have been done and and happened before i mean every historian in every discipline says there's nothing new under the sun mm-hmm. and if congregants just knew the kinds of worship wars that took place in previous <laughs> years i think they'd have more appreciation and maybe a more mature understanding of what issues are worth talking about and what issues aren't so you're saying that that carpet in the church with that little streak was not always there. That's from someone dragging the piano. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. It's, that, that, that streak isn't some holy streak. It, it actually has a story behind it. Yep. Such an old one there. But, you know, um, you mentioned that on Sunday, it could be with worship some of the most segregated times of the week because, you know, people now they have the contemporary service and then they have the hymns. And, you know, can you kind of flesh that out for us? So, what's going on here on, uh, on Sunday worship? Right. I mean, the obvious thing, and this it's not original to me, uh, is the racial issue of just how Sunday morning can still be the most divided time in, in at least America, mm-hmm. if not North America, if not the world. But we're just in this season of North American 21st century worship where it's extremely consumer-oriented. It's oriented toward the desires and the wants of the individual. And for that reason, we've we've kind of capitulated ourselves to the marketing aura of the day and said, we want to give you what you want. And inevitably, for worshipers, that turns the arrows inward and says, you know, what am, what, what am I getting out of this? Uh, what is, what's in this for me? And once you have that posture, you really do have... Um, basically the recipe for something that's very selfish and very siloed which is why i mean we see worship entities that are that are age graded and age appropriate and even churches that are large enough divide their worship services into demographics and ages and um, while there may be some merit to that uh, there's something about the body of christ as a unit of all 
stripes, ages, races, uh, socioeconomic levels, and everything that is worth striving for, e- even in the midst of the fact that it won't always be an easy road, and even in the midst of the fact that it won't be the most appealing thing to a culture that is used to getting whatever we want in whatever package mm-hmm. we want. I think that's something where the church is called to be countercultural. Yeah, I can't believe how many churches have closed because of fights over the music. I mean, honestly, it's probably the last thing you'd want to hear as a worship pastor that that goes on. Um, so you said, give us what we want. Zach, give us a rock concert. Give us neon lights. Give us give us everything that, I mean, sometimes people in the production value today is so heightened that you mentioned something in your book that, let's just say that everybody's really, you know, high on life and especially, you know, high on, on worshiping the Lord Jesus and they have all these cool, you know, effects, but... Then there's the person where, because they never really prepared for music of reflection or music of lament, someone comes in and someone's wife, God forbid, dies. And then all of a sudden, they wait, well, this is such a party all the time. And so uh, they're kind of setting us up a little bit not to really understand the fullness of God, that worship is not just about having a good time. Right. I, I try to emphasize in the book that worship needs to address all the aspects of humanity because the gospel addresses all aspects of humanity and when we take our our songbook in the psalms we read of we read worship songs in there that seem to speak to the, all the highs and lows all the emotional hues all the 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 ups and downs of life and we want worship that addresses those things because if we don't have worship that does we're in danger of giving people a picture of Christianity that can't handle the load and when when those things come that aren't addressed in worship when those those moments happen you don't have categories and one of two things happens to people who don't have those categories either they start to question uh, the faith you know is uh, is God real or they start to question their faith is my faith mm. genuine I don't feel like all these other people mm-hmm. either one of those things is is really pastorally serious for us to consider as we plan and lead worship services now if you don't mind me asking what denomination are you well it's it's a little interesting for me <laughs> my journey's funky yeah. because I'm an or- ordained Presbyterian minister all right. uh, in, a, in a smaller Presbyterian denomination called the EPC the Evangelical Presbyterian Church I'm serving in an Episcopal cathedral in downtown Birmingham uh, that is a robustly reformational and evangelical place. And I would say that uh, I've got all kinds of theological leanings that make it feel like a, a broad tent for myself. So, yeah, I'm serving in an Episcopal church, and I'm a Presbyterian minister. Nice. The reason I ask is, I believe I have this right, that you started off, can you feel a little bit charismatic when you first were experiencing worship? And then, so how would you get from there to Presbyterian? Well, uh, yeah, I, I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, and it was a great church. It was uh, It didn't feel for me terribly legalistic or oppressive. It felt freeing. It preached to me the gospel and taught me how to love Jesus and uh, engage him individually by reading my Bible and loving worship. Mm. And um, I, As far as the charismatic piece, I would just say I started out someone who really valued and even watched my mom worshiping in, in a whole way where her, her emotions were engaged, where her heart was engaged, where her body was engaged. And that really shaped the way I view worship. So even as uh, theologically, I moved in a direction that aligns more with... Uh, 
Presbyterian sentiments and and uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, for me, I retained a, a lot of what I think is the heart and the spirit of what's best about the charismatic tradition um, in the sense of a, a true expectancy that God's really there and uh, in worship and a true engagement of the whole self, not merely the intellect, but uh, the heart, the will, the emotions, and all that stuff. And uh, I don't necessarily think that those things need, and actually, they don't need to be divided. They don't need to be separated out. And uh, one of the things I, I try to do in my book, as you've kind of alluded to, is listen well across traditions yes. to what's best about their voice in worship. Yeah, you mentioned that. I thought it was a neat study, too. And, uh, you know, talking about charismatic, and you, you actually really put a lot of detail into that as far as the charismatic and then Presbyterian and, and maybe Southern Baptist, I don't know, different denominations. Um, that's something that you always knew? Or how, how often do you, I guess, just from your line of work and studying about that, but uh, maybe we should be a little bit more sensitive, I don't know, to other people's way of worshiping and styles and musical genres. And, you know, we get kind of picky about that. Definitely. My best advice, uh, because of what God just sort of foisted upon me, that blessed me, that allowed me to be this cross-tradition listener, is befriend, uh, truly befriend, people across traditions and listen to them well in your own discipline. So for me as a worship leader, what I started doing uh, about 10 years ago was networking with local worship leaders across denominations in my city. And I started uh, trying to set aside my internal critiques of them uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm I'm this way and you're not this way and this is why I'm this way and that's unbiblical. And, you know, for a side, not, not minimizing those, but saying I want to do some genuine listening here without any filters and just hear their heart, hear where they're coming from and hear how this is impacting their people. Uh, And when I started listening with a little bit more of a generosity of spirit, I found, goodness, not only is this affecting positively my own ministry in my context, but it's it's reshaping the way I think about worship in general. Uh, And I don't find that I'm giving up my convictions. I find them almost blossoming. Yes, I find them. Uh, you know, I find the scriptures coming alive for me in new ways that are really uh, consonant with what I already believe, and just needed nudges and friendships and relationships to tease that out. Man, I'm telling you, people don't want to budge when it comes to uh, hey, don't touch my hymns, or you know, don't put uh, another musical instrument besides the piano, and it gets very touchy feely. Rather than say, hey, you know, we're really going to grow from this, or uh, I'm surprised that that element isn't there, even trying. Uh, I don't know, messianic music, you know, or some, it's, it's, when you look at how they worshiped in scripture, you know, it's not always the same, if you will, contemporary hits. That's right. That's right. I, you know, uh, listening well to others is, has only proven to be a blessing to me. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about something that I think a lot of people find interesting, uh, when they go to church and hear the worship music is, manipulation versus shepherding. Now, that's in your book. As far as emotional shepherding, sometimes you get that person, it could be a woman, it could be a man, who's like, um, you know, the rock star, the the real, like the Broadway singer, and everyone comes to see that person sing, and there's nothing wrong with gleaning from that beautiful talent, but things get kind of funny with egos and things like that, and I I like the way that you you share a balance of how it's really supposed to be. Uh, What kind of complications can we have when people get uh, too I guess, um, feel like they're being manipulated a little bit emotionally in the worship. Well, yeah, I do think that um, 
I mean, it, it, there's, it's, there's so talk about history. There's so much history behind the, the church traditions and the way that they've reacted to emotional manipulation in worship. And you can almost trace denominational lines across which side they fell on at key moments in Western church history. Like in the Second Great Awakening, you really saw the flowering of that. And I've wrestled through these questions a lot because I've the more I've just studied, especially the Old Testament, and read about shalom and the wholeness of the human being, the more I felt like people in my tradition, you know, and, and in in more sort of quote thoughtful uh, traditions that really value theological precision, and we're all a little bit nervous and wary of emotions and emotions flying off the handle because we've seen in history how they've led people astray and made people feel convicted about things uh, that they really weren't convicted about and ended up confusing and and, and uh, causing harm to the body of Christ ultimately. And so for people like me, I think we needed to hear a positive word about emotions in worship, but I also that also means that I needed to address the critiques that folks in my camp tend to have, which is when you start thinking about shepherding people's emotions faithfully, you get into a gray area fast of whether you are using tools to manipulate people, mm. you know, like chord progressions that do something to the brain or uh, trigger sentimentality that sort of takes, uh, checks people's brain at the door. There's lots of uh, neurological and sociological studies about the way music works with emotions and certainly they, they are tools and what I try to do is ask questions of, and say, uh, if we are truly emotional creatures, it means that emotions aren't off the table in worship. But how do we, uh, how do we engage and lead people on an emotional journey that, number one, is faithful to biblical emotional expression? Mm-hmm. So when, uh, you know, faithful feelings, as a lot of these emotion, emotional philosophers talk about or uh, theologians talk about, that's, that's what I'm interested in. And I think on the other side, to get to your question finally, uh, <laughs> is we don't want we, we to err on the other side of haphazardly just uh, thinking that we want to get people emotional. Exactly, emotions. yes. Uh, there really needs to be purpose behind it. It's not merely, I want to make people feel good so they tell me what a great worship leader I am or, or they feel that this was a powerful worship experience. I want people to feel the emotions that are appropriate to what the gospel does at various points to the human being. Mm-hmm. You know, If, the, if uh, the word of God is there to convict and then to set free, Yes. Uh, I want people to feel the emotions that are appropriate for that conviction and feel the emotions that are appropriate for that freedom at those right moments because that's the way the gospel works. You know, I I want it I want to tether emotions to that that gospel narrative to the biblical story to Jesus Christ himself. Mm-hmm. Amen. And that, now we're talking about the title of your book, The Worship Pastor. And some people would say, hey, Zach, that's for the pastor, you know, a theological uh, you know, rendering or getting people to be educated from the place where there's worship. And you're saying that's not true. You could be a pastor and, a, you know, a worship leader, a minister of worship. And um, but you do see that, don't you? You see a lot of times that the pastor is into the uh, here's a uh, sermon, here's theology, but you can talk about theology too in scripture and do the same thing they do. Well, definitely. And uh, as I said in my book, and I've heard other people say, and this is this will be a little bit of dig at the pastor who thinks that they hold all the theological cards. Ouch. People don't, people don't walk uh, out of a service humming the sermon. <laughs> people may forget the sermon by Monday, but they inevitably uh, have these songs 
or a particular line that a worship leader said or prayed that sticks with them throughout the week. And the reality is worship songs, prayers, and the structure of a worship service theologize people. It, it trains people theologically just as much as any class or any sermon will, simply because it puts thoughts about God and how we relate to God into the heads and hearts of the people. It teaches us to pray, teaches us what talking to God feels like. Mm -hmm. And so inevitably, pastors need to wake up to the fact that their worship leaders are giving theological content to their people. Uh, and so it actually ups the ante for both the worship leader and the pastor to start thinking more critically about what it is that we're feeding our folks, what it is that people are humming as they walk out the door, what is what is becoming their meditation day and night from Monday through Saturday I like until that. they enter back in. I like that upping the ante rather than, hey, you're stepping on my toes as far as uh, giving people the, you know, uh, education uh, and theology. And, and these are things that, you know, it's, it's nice to know you could do that from the pulpit as a, as a worship leader. Definitely. Uh, yeah. And it, I think it should cause some worship leaders to shudder um, because I, part, part of the burden of the book is simply to be a wake-up call, is to say, you don't realize what you're already doing. Um, in fact, my hope for the book is not to make worship leaders feel burdened to do a bunch of things that they aren't doing, but more to reorient themselves toward what they're already doing, so that we can see it in a pastoral light, so that we can see that what we're doing is having a theological and uh, discipleship impact mm -hmm. on the folks that are, are part of our flocks. Sure. Sometimes you see where you know, the pastor says, okay, guys, hit it, and it's like a little jingle, and then back to the pastor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's it's sort of the church version of The Tonight Show or something like that where you got Dave Letterman. Yeah, exactly. Fallon, and you're going back between the bands. And <laughs> it, it, that's the least common denominator. There's so much more there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Now, I'm from New York, okay, and so... Uh, you've heard the term, uh, how to get to Carnegie Hall? Yeah. Practice, yeah. man, practice. So now here's an area you That's could right. educate us because we just see, you know, after prayers that the under the silhouette and the shadow, mysteriously, the worship leader and their instruments, they come back while we're heads are bowed and they come in and all of a sudden, wow, they're there. All of a sudden, you know, open up your eyes. And so um, give us a little insight about things that we don't really understand what goes into the practice of um, of worship. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, hopefully, especially for worship leaders who are, are, are largely music leaders, they've spent their time in the musical woodshed, and they've spent their time practicing, because there's there's nothing more distracting than poor music done poorly, uh, mm -hmm. and actually, it really does detract from our experience of worship, so uh, I think it goes underappreciated just how much worship leaders have honed and worked on their musical craft, both uh, singing and practice, and even arranging material. A lot of times the worship leader is in charge of of helping the rest of the musicians kind of like a mini orchestra put mm -hmm. all the music together in a way that takes it on a musical journey. But at the same time, I think worship leaders uh, are also called to a, a ministry that that would would put them into the Bible, that would put them into studying the scriptures. And it's like we need to be simultaneously uh, musicians and theologians, uh, and some of that bridge building between the theology world and the musical art world, That's I think that's part of our role. And not, not everybody will have those same sensibilities in the same way, and I'm not advocating that everybody needs to go to seminary or read theology books. 
But I am saying that every worship leader um, needs to be a passionate student of the scripture or needs to start engaging with the word of Mm -hmm. God because ultimately their prayers and the words that they say extemporaneously – Will uh, either be saturated in the in the scriptural vision, or it will be willy nilly and all over the place. And I don't know about you, but I've been in plenty of worship contexts where it seems like the worship leader didn't know what they were saying. And uh, there's nothing more distracting than that, too. Yeah, I want to ask you also: Do you think a mortician would make a good worship pastor? Just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> no, no. The other way around. Okay. We would make horrible morticians. <laughs> so. Um, you, you know, my mother, she used to teach piano, okay? So as a little kid, I'd see from up in the railing, up the stairs, that uh, she'd say, okay, let's just say, Cynthia, darling, would you practice and or play that song? And then all of a sudden, the person would be in tears, a little kid, because they didn't practice. And they were called out on that. How how tough should, uh, you know, worship leaders be on how prepared people are? Because uh, we don't know, you know, we show up on Sunday, we assume that everyone's practiced out, but does that vary across? Cross churches? Are you you're talking about the congregation? Well, no. As far as you know, the the band getting together or the the choir and, and practice. I mean, is everyone practiced up? Are they too practiced or not enough? You tell us. Well, I think that there it really depends on the particular ethos of your local church. I don't think one size fits all. I've been in part. I've been in parts of churches where there was actually a high value placed on just the authentic work of the people and because of that authentic work of the people and wanting everybody to be involved there was just a general understanding in the community that our music making isn't going to be polished it's just going to be real and we're going to all kind of bring our instruments to the table and make it happen uh, and i think that that's an ex- acceptable awesome model and there are pluses to that i've also been a part of churches that really value making the art well uh, and not for the sake of a show, but for really supporting and supplanting strong congregational singing. Uh, and I, I think that that has its pl- place, too. And it, it probably depends a little bit on your denominational tradition. It probably depends a little bit on the size of your church, because as churches get larger, people have different expectations. It probably uh, depends a little bit on what kind of music that the majority of your folks are listening to. Is it really produced well-known music? And if so, their ears are tuned to quality music and we can no longer get away with something without it being really distracting. So a lot of it has to do with cultural context and local church community beliefs and practices. Yes, and having said that, you know, and you do cover this a little bit in your book, how you know, much participation should there be from the congregation? Because you mentioned in the past in history, there was a lot of singing going on or a lot of dancing going on, or in some cases, there was constant prayer taking place throughout worship. How have things changed? Well, interestingly enough, if you look at the history lesson and then quickly applied now, Reformation, the Reformers were very concerned about how inactive the people of God were. In medieval Roman worship, you had a very inactive laity who would sit there and listen and watch the priest do their work up front. And largely the priest did perform the liturgy inaudibly uh, with their backs facing the congregation, especially when they were celebrating communion. And so the congregant's job was just to sit there and let the priest do their work on their behalf. And the reformer said this: the liturgy is... For everybody, worship is for everyone. Um, they believed in the priesthood of all believers, and so you fast forward to the present, um, and, and even maybe if you're just thinking of maybe modern evangelical worship in what we know it as now, 
what you find, even if we're just looking at kind of the rock concert model of worship, is if you look out, you see a lot of passive receptors. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of people that are just staring up front at the spectacle. And it's ironic that out of this reformational tradition known as evangelicalism, in many sectors you have a reversion to something that was actually opposed Interesting. to the Reformation, you know, a passive laity. And so, and I think that that cuts both ways. It's actually not a stylistic thing because I've seen uh, traditional worship done really well, so well that people's job was just to sit and go, wow, isn't that a great choir? Listen to that beautiful classical piece. And my job is just to appreciate and tell the musicians what a great job they did at the end of the service. Hmm. Uh, and it's the same thing. So um, it's, a, it's kind of an equal opportunity Offender, and I'm a big believer that worship is is for the people to be engaging in. And uh, as I did say in my book, and as you alluded to, it's one long prayer session. Whether the prayers are sung, whether they're spoken by a minister and received by the people, or spoken by the people or received through preaching, it, you know, worship from beginning to end is an active participation of the people of God. And if our congregations could get that, and, and that's going to take a lot of disavowing ourselves a 21st century entertainment culture uh, lingering stuff you know we're mm -hmm. gonna have to get rid of that for us to regain a sense of what it means for the people of God to participate but it, it's all really important and part of our job as 21st century worship pastors to think through how do we get our people to that place how do we lead people from A to Z how do we get them from here to there well here's an interesting subject this is a little sticky here uh, do you have to like the pastor I mean, let's just say that you get hired somewhere and, you know, the congregation loves you. It's great. But you know what? I don't, I don't really like the pastor that much. Does, does that happen? Are you talking about the worship leader? Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, what I've said in my book, and I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with pastors and worship leaders alike. And I've come to the conclusion that in the modern church, where, you know, where uh, the church's uh, staff structure is largely pastor and worship leader, that that's one of the most key relationships. And depending on how that relationship goes, I do think that has an effect on the way the body of Christ operates. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy for worship leaders to not have good relationships with their pastors and to not like them. I don't think it's healthy for pastors to uh, not have an appreciation for and a good relationship with. And my encouragement to both worship leaders and pastors is to is to pursue authenticity and uh, genuine relationship with one another because it, it just ripples effects. It's, it's kind of like the way if, if your marriage is rocky, your kids feel it, even if you're hiding it really well and putting on a good show. Uh, and in the same way, if the worship leader pastor relationship is rocky, it has its untold consequences in the life of the congregation, and it really can't go far. I've, I've never seen it go up. I've always seen it end poorly, eventually, and then end with a with not a small amount of pain in the entire body of Christ. I could just see it now, you know, uh, play the next song, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You can tell, I mean, it's, it's hard, especially for us emotional worship leaders that tend to sort of wear ourselves on our sleeves. We have our time, you know, hiding our true feelings, especially when we're sort of this millennial sarcastic type that, you know, crave and, and display our authenticity mm -hmm. before the watching world. 
uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's not something that you're going to be able to hide for long if you really don't like them. All right. So now on that subject, this is along the same line. So let's just say that uh, you get in a fight with your wife, you know, or you're, you're worshiping or as uh, you have to be upbeat and you have to, you know, I mean, this is a supernatural thing. You have to have the Holy Spirit to really put you in the right mindset and the, the heart has to be prepared to lead people to worship. But we're humans. So what happens if the worship leader gets into a fight with the spouse? First of all, I'd say that's it's really common. It just happens all the time. Uh, I mention my own, you know, uh, Saturday night fights is what I call it uh, <laughs> with my wife. You know, and I started to realize that part of that we can acknowledge is the work of the enemy, mm. the work of the devil to try to. Uh, undermine the worship of the people of God by attacking their leader. And so I, I've just seen it time and again with pastors and worship leaders that there's a rift with a, a spouse right before something really important like a worship service. And I think it's important for both parties to acknowledge that that's just going to be a reality of our marriage or of our friendship or whatever have you, that relationships will get strained in and around these very important events in the life of the church. Uh, but secondly, I'd, I'd also say, uh, you know, there are some times where if we're doing it week in and week out, it's just not going to be rosy. And I'll be the first to admit there have been times where I've had to just fake it because I realize I have a pastoral duty to uh, lead these people. And it's not I don't I wouldn't describe it uh, as much as being inauthentic and therefore I shouldn't do it as much as saying um, I'm I'm fulfilling the obligation of my call in this moment, whether I feel it or not. I mean, our best worship service, we want our our hearts and minds to be aligned. But in the end, because we're human beings and because life is not perfect, we're just going to end up in those weeks where everything's falling apart and we've still got a call. I, I talk about that in one of my chapters when my life was falling apart because my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And the only way I could sustain paying her medical bills was to keep this worship leading job, which I desperately wanted to quit because I was really at a bad place with God. I didn't, I didn't appreciate him. And perhaps I, I should have quit, but I, I will tell you that my journey through worshiping through the pain and sort of in a way, quote, faking it till I made it, uh, God really did see me through, and he taught me something new about the nature of worship and suffering and, and crying out to God in those times, and that worship was a pl there was a place for the sufferer in worship. So uh, in the mess of life, I still think those who are called are called and should press forth and do it um, authentically and in a way that empties yourself of self. You know, sometimes we, we strive to be so authentic that we end up sort of uh, displaying ourselves before the congregation in a way that puts all the pointers on yes. rather than Jesus. So th mm -hmm. that's another angle too that needs you know we need to admonish worship leaders. Hey, it's not about you anyway. That's right. So whether you're having a good day or a bad day, your job is to point to Jesus. So Amen. start and finish. Do it. You know. So yeah. You know, what do what do you think about the audition process? Because people really don't know how you know these folks sometimes get up there. And uh, I know you have to audition or say you want to be up there. You have a couple of things I'll throw at you. One. Have you ever had to tell someone like uh, Simon Cowell, American Idol, I'm sorry, but, you know, you didn't cut the grade. And uh, as much as you have enthusiasm, and we really can't use you. <laughs> you know, it's yes, you got to be in I tune. And you can't be, uh, you know, how does that work? And and would you like to see more people who probably have some good voices out there audition? Definitely. And it's it's a hard thing because unlike American Idol, unlike The Voice, 
there are spiritual dynamics here, and there are realities of spiritual gifts that we need to acknowledge. And so sometimes, I mean, this can be a real faith crisis for some people who feel like they have a gift and that uh, God has called them to use this gift to bless the church. And worship leader Zach is standing in the way of the Holy Spirit's call of them to come up and give their gift to the community. And so more than just sort of Simon Cowell told you, you, you stink, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's Zach standing in the way of God's call in my life, you know. Uh, and so that it's just it's ratcheted up. Everything's got a, a different emotional and spiritual hue on it, which makes it all the more difficult. And so I'd say one size doesn't fit all. There have been times where I've probably grandfathered people in or let people slide because pastorally in that moment, the Holy Spirit was saying, this person for their sake needs to be here. And you need to make a way that isn't too distracting for the people of God. So maybe that means they're singing, but their their mics turned down, or <laughs> they're they're in a in an ensemble rather than singing solos if they're a singer, you know stuff like that. Uh, I have to navigate, and so I don't have hard and fast rules. But I've seen great worship leaders, depending on the style of their church, you know, kind of create different policies and you know develop a handbook that indicates hey these are sort of the rubrics here are the criteria of what it means to be a good musician and here's what we're looking for and if you feel like you fit this come on in and let's hear what you have we're going to have you play a song we're going to have you maybe sight read a little bit we're gonna, if you're a vocalist we're going to see if you can harmonize on the spot or you can read notes really well or whatever our sort of musical culture is and I think there's a, there's a real strong place for that in the church because the flip side is you let anybody in and you end up blessing them, but it, it, it causes just major distraction with your people. And so you're always weighing, um, you know, how, and it's always a pastoral question. How am I pastoring the individual? How am I pastoring the flock? And mm. how, is, how does this translate into people of God engaging with God? And hearing what worship is really supposed to be saying and doing, which is not a show, it's not a concert, it's about engaging with uh, the living God through the Spirit uh, to the Father by the means of the mediation and merits of Jesus, you know? And if we can keep our sights on that, I think that those things, with wisdom and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in the moment, will we'll solve themselves and, and uh, will find their proper pastoral place. Yes. Zach Hicks is the author of this great book. It's called The Worship Pastor, A Call to Ministry for Worship Leaders and Teams. And, you know, something, this is kind of like, this is your life, but I'm going to say this. I've actually seen you week after week at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. No kidding. Yes, I, I have. Guess. <laughs> this is your life, Zach. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. And so, you know, when I saw that you had a book here, uh, which I think people should go ahead and get, uh, it's really a lot of work went into it. And, you know, certainly enjoyed watching you and, and being edified by it more than anything. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's a huge shocker. You waited till the end. Of <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, you know, that uh, now, I, you know, one last question I would like to ask you is that, you know, what are we doing well in church as far as the worship and, and what can we do better? Uh, I think, well, it really it just depends on the on the tradition. That's a heavy one. Um, I, I'm excited about when I when I meet young worship leaders and I think about the worship world. I'm finding a new awakening of young worship leaders who are restless with uh, just the rock star model, and and they're thinking deeper thoughts. They're they're starting to to think critically about how worship shapes people, 
and how much maybe that they need to be clued in to what the Bible says about worship. I'm finding a new depth and desire for for true being, being pastoral in, in their worship. And I'm really encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by a general openness among evangelical churches that typically weren't open before to the tradition of the church, the small t tradition, and listening to maybe historic liturgical uh, uh, voices and things like that. I'm encouraged by those movements. I'm in, encouraged by the movements of Protestant traditions that have typically been wary of uh, visual arts because of our baggage and our history in the Reformation, re-engage some of the, the richness of what it means. And I think that's largely come through technology and through the fact that as uh, as people herald, we're, we're moving from a uh, you know, we're, we're a visual culture now. Mm-hmm. And so thinking through the visual dimensions of worship, I think, will become increasingly important. Um, I think that with all that said, there are blind spots. Uh, and I would hope that we think critically and with a lot of wisdom about the way that we co-opt a lot of the values of culture, even as we seek our worship to be enculturated and, you know, uh, contextualized to our time and place that as we're seeking those contextual models of music and worship uh, service structure, that we think critically about as we engage these practices, um, what what gods of culture are we sort of bringing into the church that we need to not bring in or we need to call out prophetically? There are so many people who love worship music, and uh, your book, The Worship Pastor, A Call to Ministry for Worship Leaders and Teams, really gives people insight. So I think they'll appreciate uh, it's more than just a sit up, sit down. You know, there's a lot that goes on behind it. You have the history of it. You have the theology of it. And you lead us to the gospel message, which is most important. And so we appreciate that. And um, thanks so much for being on the program. Well, thank you very much, and I'm grateful, and I sure hope that my book's an encouragement to people ultimately, and that it it actually lifts people and doesn't give them a burden, but sets them free. Absolutely. So if you're a worship leader right now and you're listening, tell yourself three times, you are a worship pastor. You are a worship pastor. Just don't get fired for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being on the program. God bless you. Thank you so much.